Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ontario voters handed Premier Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario a renewed mandate with even more seats than the last election. The PCs managed a strong win despite the fact that less than 50% of voters turned up at the polls. The loss also has both main opposition parties looking for new leaders. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post politics reporter Brian Passifume joins me to discuss how Ford and the PCs managed such a decisive victory, how the opposition parties regroup and what may explain the low voter turnout. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Brian, we're a few days past the election results in Ontario. Now everyone knows that Doug Ford and the PC party of Ontario have racked up a second consecutive majority government, even increasing their seat total from 2018. As someone who was covering the campaign for post media, kind of watching what was going on, I know you normally cover federal politics, but as, as someone who's watching this campaign, what were your thoughts on election night? Were you surprised that things went the way that they did? Were you expecting maybe one of the other political parties to find some weakness in Ford's armor and potentially make a dent in his support? What were your initial thoughts when you saw the votes come in last Thursday night? You know what? I was not surprised. It was probably one of the most unsurprising election nights that I've covered, that I've even witnessed or, or seen as a regular Joe. I've never seen an election unfold exactly how the polls said they would. I did our weekly uh, election poll story for the, for the National Post for, for the Ontario election. And everybody always talks about, oh, yeah, you can't always put a lot of faith in opinion polls. And the only only opinion poll that matters is election day and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that uh, this election really proved that sometimes polls really do get the pulse of the electorate. And I think that's exactly what happened here. I think that most observers, uh, especially those who weren't mired in wishful thinking and hoping that the, uh, the, the Doug Ford government would go away, there really was nothing surprising. It, it unfolded exactly how pollsters and how observers thought it would, that uh, it would be another majority and uh, that the, the opposition parties would not really factor to much. Was it a case in your view that, you know, there were things that went right for the Ford campaign or that the opposition really kind of missed an opportunity here. We have, you know, four years of a Doug Ford government. We have two plus years of a global pandemic during which the Ford government was criticized for any number of issues, specifically around long-term care, that they just missed an opportunity to really go after the government for its record on some of these issues. I think that's one of those questions that there's never going to be a straight answer. I think people are going to kind of listen and, and, and tune into the facts that kind of fit their own opinions of how things went down. But, you know, if you were to ask anybody, you know, within the first year of the Ford government's first term in office, if, you know, that, uh, you know, A, that be reelected and B, be given a stronger mandate than they were before, you'd probably be laughed out of Queen's Park. <laughs> You've got a government that, especially around the autism file, garnered a lot of angst, you know, a government that, uh, you know, saw opposition everywhere it went. 
I think a big factor in that is is the fact that people just really weren't tuned in. Like the voting turnout numbers were at record lows. They were down like in the low 40%, which is really it's if not the lowest in Canadian history, it's it's definitely the lowest in, in, in Ontario history. And I think that's I think that says a lot. I think that the Ford government definitely did get a larger mandate this time from the voters, but I, I think that uh, that asterisk that will always hang over this government is the low voter turnout. People just weren't engaged this time around as as they were in a lot of other campaigns. I mean, obviously, when people tend to stay home and vote, they're either happy with the way things are going or they're just so kind of disengaged or unhappy with the choices out there that they don't necessarily see a reason to go to the polls. And sometimes that's good for the government, as in this case, and sometimes it's bad for the government. I I think back to my time in Alberta, the 2004 provincial election where voters stayed home en masse and, and while the Klein government didn't lose the election, they certainly, it was seen as a boon for the opposition, that the Tory voters were disaffected. This may be something for political scientists to to analyze for years, but do you have a sense of whether it's that the opposition parties just weren't doing enough or people were politicked out after two years of COVID? What do we assume happened with voters this time out? I think the answer to your question is yes. (laughs) I think think all of that had a factor. I think that... uh, Everything you mentioned, but I think the biggest issue, I think one of the bigger ones that I've seen in the poll numbers and just from from talking to people is that just just people didn't care. People just didn't give a crap. People are burned out. People, you know, I've been forced, whether they like to or not, been forced to take a political stand on things. And, you know, for political reporters and the scores of hobbyists who like to uh, declare themselves politically minded on Twitter, but really are just machines of, uh, of scorn and angst, you know, it, it burns people out to be constantly on all the time. We, you know, we've had the convoy, the pandemic, it, it's forced people to take a stand politically and that, and that burns regular people out. People just don't like to be constantly bombarded. I know I don't, you know, on my weekends, the last thing I want to do is talk politics. And I think that that, that had a huge factor that people just, just didn't bother going out. It's, you know, one of the things I've noticed just going around was that hardly anybody had an election signs out. Like nobody on my street had an election sign. Whereas usually, particularly in Ontario elections where the vote seems to generally go right down the middle you, you, see, you see a lot of people put signs out you know ndp uh you know ontario pc party ontario liberals but this time nothing you know there, there was the, the signs on the side of the road but no one bothered to actually get out and take that step of putting a sign on the lawn and I, I think that's a huge factor and i think that as you mentioned before political scientists are always going to be debating what happened with this election because this, this was an election that the ford government really one by default, they didn't really campaign. They didn't have a campaign bus full of media touring around like the other parties did. They just kind of showed up to a few things. Uh, you know, their their campaign team were very, very sure to make sure that Ford didn't talk to the press. I've got some pretty good ends with the Ford administration, with the premier's office. You know, I couldn't get an interview with the premier. I, I know that a lot of people have a lot stronger connections than I do, and they weren't able to get an interview with the premier. So it was it was a, it was a good combination of of smart campaigning and not campaigning at all, and just kind of letting the opposition parties tie their own noose. Speaking of opposition parties tying their own noose, we have two opposition leaders who resigned on election night, and I want to talk about each of them individually. First, I want to talk about Andrea Horvath. She's been around in provincial politics for nearly two decades. She was the leader of the NDP for, I think, going on 13 years heading into this election. She was a familiar face on the political scene for a long time. 
Was it the fact that they won up official opposition status back in 2018 because the liberal party was so reviled at that point that voters looked to the NDP as, as a potential alternative? The fact that the NDP is still official opposition, I imagine that still wasn't enough for her to stick around as leader. She wasn't able to make any inroads with voters, so it was time for her to go. What was the reasoning for her to resign her post as leader? I think the best way to understand that is to look at what the NDP used to be. The NDP in Ontario for a long time, they, they, they formed government when I was in high school. Bob Ray was, was the premier for a while and, and his, his time of premier was controversial. It was, uh, it was different. It was the first time Ontario had been subjected to such a, in terms of the 1990s, a far left government, not far left, but sort of a, such a left leaning government. Mm-hmm. And after that, they pretty much slipped into obscurity. They weren't able to crack, you know, more than a few seats. They weren't, uh, they were never the official opposition. And it wasn't until Andrea came along that, uh, she turned that party around. She she turned the party from pretty much just a um, you know sort of a, a leftover of, uh, of of whatever of of the Bob Ray government in Ontario, and within a very short time politically whipped it around to you know them being the official opposition. And that's a huge deal. That is a huge deal. You know, Andrea is a lifetime politician. She was uh, voted to um, you know Hamilton City Council in the late nineties uh, before moving over to provincial politics in two thousand four, and yeah, she deserves an enormous amount of credit for rebuilding the NDP. And I, I think much like how uh, the federal NDP is judged by Jack Layton, I think that uh, the Ontario NDP is going to be judged a lot by how Andrea ran things. And you know, she got reelected. She's incredibly popular. A lot of people, regardless of party affiliation in Queen's Park, do like her, you know, but she, she recognized that her, her time is over. I think that uh, for her, she's, she's definitely leaving on a high note. We'll talk about Stephen Del Duca, the Ontario Liberal leader in a minute, but I, I think that uh, when you look at these two departures, they couldn't be more opposite of the spectrum. You know, Andrew is going out like Seinfeld. Uh, you know, top of her game, and Del Duke was going out like I don't know. Uh, insert a show, a TV show here that went far past the time. Happy days, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny you said happy days. I was thinking exactly that. Yeah. Um, potentially aging ourselves here with Andrea Horvath. You know, there's lots of talk that her time in politics isn't over yet, even though her time as NDP leader is over. Do we get the sense that she made step back from Queen's Park sooner than her term as a member of provincial parliament is up? That's the big question. And that's kind of the big rumor. You know, speaking about low voter turnouts and elections that people just don't care about. We've got municipal <laughs> elections coming up in a few months. Yeah. You know, this, this fall, we're all going to the ballot to devote new mayors and city councils. And, and, and normally there's a kind of whole hum events anyways. People, you know, rarely turn out for these anyways. But, you know, having a municipal election so soon after a federal and a, and a provincial election, I'm, I'm really curious to see how the, the turnout's like. But you're right, uh, Andrea, you know, I would not be surprised if she she ends up putting her name in to run for the mayor of Hamilton. You know, as I mentioned before, she got her start politically in Hamilton. She's a Hamilton girl. She's She's been a huge Hamilton booster. Hamilton has always been a big NDP supporter. It's Ontario and Canada steel town. It's always been, uh, you know, labor and NDP have always been huge. So, yeah, I think that, um, you know, if, if she does put her name in to be the mayor of Hamilton, I think that, uh, you know, she'd probably win and she'd probably do a fantastic job. I think that that is uh, definitely a great way for her to uh, go into the next stage and possibly even uh, the end of her political career. We'll be right back. Now, on the flip side, you have liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. He was a cabinet minister in the government of Kathleen Wynne. I look at his 
tenure as leader. And he wasn't helped by the fact that he took over as leader right around the time that the pandemic started. These are correlative, not causative, but (laughs) this idea that his political leadership was kind of thrown into upheaval right away. He wasn't able to put himself in front of voters. Looking at the campaign from Alberta, I saw him as kind of a nameless, faceless character. He lacked a general charisma. He didn't seem like the kind of guy who was going to turn the party's fortunes around. And that may not be a fair take on my part, but that's just looking at the campaign from afar. He just seemed like a guy like Melba Toast, I guess, for for lack of a better word. Why was he not able to really kind of capture voters' attention? Was it a platform thing, a policy thing, a personality thing? Where was the liberal campaign doomed? I think the liberal campaign was doomed when Kathleen Wynne was premier. For your listeners who aren't tuned into the intricacies of Ontario politics, Doug Ford, he became premier after a historic cataclysmic defeat of the previous government. Kathleen Wynne was premier under the Ontario Liberals, and she took over for Dalton McGuinty, who was the previous leader who who left under a bit of a, a cloud of scandal. I won't go into the whole issues here, but... Needless to say that, um, you know, the Ontario Liberals completely collapsed two elections ago. They were reduced from the majority ruling party to a party without enough seats for official party status. You know, they, they got completely decimated. All of that has to do, and, and one of the big key factors in getting things on track was to elect a dynamic and, and, and charismatic and outgoing leader that uh, can rival, um, you know, Doug Ford's folksy, every man, great guy to have a beer with attitude. The Kathleen Wynne's kind of a very uh, you know, outgoing nature. And, and for some reason, they, they, they chose Stephen Del Duca, which was very unkindly compared to an android who had his emotion chip removed. Like he's there, <laughs> there's, there's no charisma. A great example of that is just their concession speeches. Like on election night, uh, Andrea got up and, and, and right from the beginning, she was crying. Like thanking her supporters, and I knew right away that okay, that's it. She's definitely bowing out, and it was it was an emotional emotional speech when she you know thanked her people, thanked the people who voted, and then announced that she was leaving. That she was in tears, and then you know we go live now to the Stephen Del Duca's campaign where he just kind of stood there and very said, "Well, we didn't do that great, and I'm just dropping out." And really, I, I think that you know, that lack of charisma really didn't connect with voters. And and there's a lot of people in the Ontario Liberal Party who weren't a fan of Mr. Del Duca to begin with. I think that um, whatever dislike the voters had for him was probably magnified three times by the dislike that people in their own party had for him. I, he, was a, he was a controversial pick. He was not very well liked. And uh, I think that it was just a, yet another in a line of bad decisions that uh, are probably most likely you know, reduce the Ontario Liberals to the level of the Alberta Liberals. Where do the opposition parties go from here? Is there a way back for the Liberals to official party status? And how did the NDP regroup and replace someone who is seemingly as well-liked and as popular as Andrea Horvath was in, in her tenure as leader? I think that the NDP can get a lot of lessons from the Del Duca example, because, you know, we talked earlier about Jack Layton, Del Duca was almost like the, the the Thomas Mulcair of the Ontario Liberal Party, went in there and just kind of just landed with a thud. And I think that um, one of the things that Ford is really facing right now is that he's got a majority, he's got like over 80 seats in Queen's Park, and he's facing two leaderless opposition parties. He's pretty much just got a, you know, 
if I was in the premier's office right now, I'd be I'd be cracking over the champagne because they've definitely got a decent turbo ahead of them. But where where the opposition parties go from here, they're gonna have to pick leaders that not only resound with the people they want to bring to their party, but they all someone also that can also attract people from other parties because one of the things in Ontario and, and you see this in a lot of other provinces with two popular parties that kind of the similar ideology is that there's a lot of vote trading back and forth and the last election a lot of the liberal voters bailed on the on the liberals of the NDP and that's one of the factors in the NDP's victory and the liberals lost in the 2018 election was that a lot of those liberal supporters jumped ship and went to the NDP for a lot of reasons, including Del Duca. And I I think that the political parties are going to have to understand that membership isn't fluid anymore. And we saw that with the discontentment with uh, the Ford government, and it led to the formation of of the new Blue Party and then the Ontario Party. And, you know, neither of those parties got a seat, but they still garnered enough votes that I think people in the Premier's office should stand up and take notice that uh, there is a lot of discontent out there. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if they want to get a third term, I think that they need to work on sort of bringing their ship together and also capitalizing this rare gift that they have of uh, of facing two parties that are essentially leaderless. I do want to touch on the Ford government in a moment, but you mentioned the two parties to the right. We had New Blue and we had the Ontario Party. They managed to scrounge up about 200,000 votes, about 4% of the total votes cast, maybe 4.5%. Is that a signal that there is a movement on the far right in Ontario politics that is going to stick around? Could we see those parties merge to consolidate that support? Is that something the Ford government needs to worry about at this point? I think a lot of that came out of anger over the pandemic and the, the, the vaccine mandates. I think that you know frustration over those spilled over enough where people were just like, well, you know, screw you, I'm going to take my toys and go home. I think that in the next election... Those parties are going to be a little less of a factor unless we end up with another worldwide pandemic that challenges, you know, our basic freedoms and, and, and rights as human beings. But I think that it was kind of a very, very weird, perfect storm of everything coming together. And I think that the impact of those parties will be lesser as time goes on. But, uh, you know, I think it's something that uh, definitely should serve as a wake up call for for anybody in politics. As you mentioned, the Ford government is dealing with two leaderless opposition parties. He and his inner circle were probably cracking the champagne even more on Thursday night after Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca resigned. Where does the government go now? Like, There wasn't a big campaign platform for the PCs. There were announcements like freeways and you know getting stuff done for Ontario. What can Ontarians and I guess Canadians expect from the a renewed majority Ford government? I think where do we go from here is I think it's a question that they're still asking in the premier's office and they haven't answered yet. And I think that uh, we really won't know until, you know, until some sort of a throne speech or some sort of a uh, policy statement out of the premier's office. But I, I think we can assume along the same lines of what we've seen now. I think that before the election there, you know, they eliminated vehicle registration fees and dropping tolls on the toll highways in Ontario that Ontario is capable of dropping the tolls on. And I think those are the kind of the little populist things that really resound. I think that they want to keep that energy going. I, I really think that the next thing they look at is gas prices. You know, I, I drive a pickup truck and gas prices are supposed to here in Ontario are supposed to go up to almost $2 and 15 cents a liter by, you know, by the middle of this week. And, it's hard to get around. It's hard for a lot of people to go places, just the affordability. I think any government right now, with the exception of the federal government, because they really 
just don't seem to care. But I think that the, uh, the provincial governments, uh, especially in Ontario, are, are really going to start looking at affordability. What can they do to make life more affordable? And, and I think that's where they should be going. If they will, I don't know. It kind of fits into the Ford government's populist policies of, of kind of doing things with a little guy. And I, I really would... Uh, I would be surprised if they didn't, and I would be very uh, pleased if they did uh, address some sort of way to make uh, gas and uh, cost of living uh, cheaper because things are spiraling out of control. And uh, it's up to, to government to set the uh, policies in place that uh, so we don't end up going broke just buying groceries. <laughs> That's very true. It's a, something that Canadians across the country are dealing with right now. Well, the Ontario campaign's over. I imagine there's a lot on the federal scene for you to be watching for. Uh, thanks for your time, Brian. Anytime. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Brian Passifume. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.